Hey, this is Overcoming the Odds podcast, episode three. Today's episode, we talked to my longtime friend, Michelle, about giving back to the community and how important it really is. We discussed her ability to talk to the dead. And lastly, what it was like for her growing up with a father who had mental illness. My father was schizophrenic, and he had schizophrenia since he was 15. And schizophrenia is often a progressive illness, so it gets worse over time. And so a lot of my early life was them trying to figure out how to have a family, what the right medications could be. I thought I dealt with that so well. I thought I was a rock star. And then here I am carrying this baggage that like I had no idea was there. You know, I think I probably would have used alcohol to cope. I would have probably like wrecked my marriage. (laughs) I made a choice. It was my choice to pull it together. All that and more coming up after the break. This podcast is brought to you by Gaming VPN. If you don't have a VPN, you should definitely download Gaming VPN for, well, gaming and streaming. Stay secure online all the time. It's only available on iOS. Go to gamingvpn.tech, T-E-C-K. I'm Josh Coyne, and this is Overcoming the Odds Podcast. How are you? I'm good, thanks. How are you? I'm well. Nice to see you. Nice to see you too. So I I've been doing this, and you know I think you had a great story. I think we just start from the beginning, really. You know, like but pretend I didn't know anything. Hmm. Okay. You know, um, I was on one of those HGTV shows, like when I was 22. It was my first um, run in with reality TV, and I was just um, appalled by how many times they were like, "That was great. Stop. Let's do it again." Now, let's do that again. Change that word. And I was like, there's nothing real about reality TV as I was pretend rolling a wall in the middle of the room so they could get the camera angle right. What was that show? My First House or My First Home. Did they at least pay you? They There was a budget of $3,000 to redo one room in our house. Yeah. Wow. All right, good. You had to be moving into your first home. You had to be doing it at a specific time in Philly. And they would come in and redo a whole room in a weekend. I won't make you do things twice. I might interrupt you with questions, but... You know, we've known each other since high school and, um, you know, I know your brother equally as well. And, you know, I didn't know anything about any of this stuff about you prior to our call, you know, and like, um, and I'm sure, you know, you didn't know that I had CF either, you know, like that's, that was my entire life and still is, but differently. So, you know, we find out a lot of things from each other that we just didn't know. We really do. And I think it's amazing, especially when you get to be the age that we are, it's a beautiful, magical age of looking back and being able to see kind of the parts of our identity that we kept hidden for so long and the parts of our identity that we manufactured for a long time to kind of put up as protections for the stuff we were dealing with in our life. Um, But then at the same time, how much of that journey pays off when you're at this point in time, when you decide to really live authentically and you realize that I could never be as effective living how I am right now if I didn't have both sides of that story in the past. Yeah. I think that's kind of a beautiful part of it. You're totally right. And, you know, coping really is kind of like the way I look at it, right? It was a coping mechanism, you know, like I was not necessarily in denial about CF. I mean, I knew I had it. I took care of myself my entire life. I was just in denial about talking about it because if I talked about it, then it would be reality. If I just did everything the way I was supposed to do and nothing had changed prior, like take my medication, do my, my treatments, my breathing exercises and everything I had to do, that was just normal for me. You know, like the first Mm -hmm. time I went to a sleepover at a friend's house, I didn't know why they didn't have to take medication and, and like inhale yeah. medication from a nebulizer. Like I didn't know that. Right. So, wow. right. Cause it was just normal for me. Yeah. But talking about it was always difficult because then it became a reality of like, not only do I have this disease, but it's also a terminal illness, right? There's in denial helped me a lot. I won't, I won't deny that it helped a lot. Now it could be helpful. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But also talking about it has helped in a different way that I didn't expect it to. So yeah, I'm sure you had a similar kind of experience, you know, with what you had to deal with growing up. Yeah, too, because I think, um, and I don't know if you experienced this, but when you have a really heavy thing that you're, that you have as part of your family or your life, and you decide to be vulnerable and share it with someone who has absolutely no context or no idea what you're up against, and often you're young or they don't have a lot of life, life experience, and you share it with them and the tone of their response completely changes. And now they see you different. They respond to you different. And you're not only carrying your own experience, but you're suddenly carrying theirs at the same time. So 
very quickly, I kind of learned there were people I could talk to about it and there were people I, w- I, I couldn't. And not even really say couldn't, but wouldn't, you know, I was like, I don't want to change this relationship by being honest about what I have going on in my home life. So I'm just going to keep that out of it. Yeah. I've had girls dump me. Oh, so, I know. Dead serious. Heartless B words. Yeah, totally. A hundred percent. I've had girls dump me. Um, not many, just one was enough and it was tough. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I think really when it started circling around for me, how important and how heavy my past was because if you grew up with your experience feeling normal as I did there's a point where I realized like this actually wasn't normal it actually was really hard and it's actually affected me 10 times more than I ever thought and that might be why this is so hard and that is so hard and why I haven't been able to like failure to launch in this one area mm-hmm. and and there's a little bit of a, a grieving and shock process that happens where you're like shoot I thought I dealt with that so well. I thought I was a rock star. And then here I am carrying this baggage that like I had no idea was there in its effect on my life. And that's kind of when I got into um, understanding what adverse childhood experiences are or ACEs and how they affect our genetics and, you know, how that affects just our, our long-term life prognosis and really starting to look at what did I do differently? What did I have differently? And how can I help affect that? for other people struggling with the same things. Like how can I, how can you get aid or charity or, um, you know, help of neighbors really get in at that critical point where we start to lose people. Cause you know, having stuff like that in your life can, can really affect your, your future. So let's, let's talk about what, because people listening to this have no idea what had happened or what your childhood was like. Right. So let's talk about what exactly happened and, and what you had to deal with growing up. Yeah. So, um, my father was schizophrenic and he had schizophrenia since he was 15. My mother was his next door neighbor. So they were like, um, junior high sweethearts. Essentially they got together when he was 15 and she was 13 and they were pretty much together that whole time. Then they had me at, um, when my mother was 19 and they stayed together until I was about seven. So that whole time they were navigating his illness and his illness was very serious. And schizophrenia is often a progressive illness, so it gets worse over time. And so a lot of my early life was them trying to figure out how to have a family, what the right medications could be, what his level of functioning would be. He would like have jobs, not have jobs, be in crisis, not be in crisis. So there was just a lot of chaos in my home life. Um, But when I was about 16, my father had a bad reaction to some medication in complete delusion, he really had no idea what he was doing. He stabbed his mother in the eye with an ice pick. She is fine. Thank God. It, it, it's really, you know, a beautiful story of family healing in the end. But that did start a course with him um, interacting with the justice system. He was in jail for a year, untreated, before they got him into Norristown State Hospital, which was a mental treatment facility in Pennsylvania. Um, so he was there for much of my teenage years. So when I knew you, <laughs> I was often going on the weekends to go see him at Norristown State Hospital with family and kind of navigating the world of mental wards and and advocating for care and stuff like that. And that's, I mean, that's super heavy to deal with for anybody, let alone, you know, 15, yeah. 16, 17. Yeah. Um, are you the oldest sibling? I am. Yeah. Okay. I was old and my brother is three years younger than me. Right. Um, And at the time, like, I think what was tough is at the time it was in the newspaper and media coverage of things like that at the time, like the headlines were insane attacker ends Mm. up in jail, insane attacker stabs mother. There was no context of really wonderful family man who had reaction to medication accidentally. You know what I mean? I think some people knew, but they kept that from us. So, you know, my, my mom and my stepdad did the best they could trying to kind of insulate us from those times. but. It was, it was very, very difficult. Did you feel as though your father was dangerous or did you feel as though it was strictly just a medical issue and that it was a mixed diagnosis or, or mis, uh, prescribed medication? It's kind of tough to explain. So anyone who's had someone in their life with a major mental illness or actually alcoholism, it's kind of the same way. Like y- you start to learn their moods and figure out how you need to react to keep yourself safe and to keep the whole family dynamic chill based on where they are. So I knew he was dangerous. You could kind of sense it in his energy, but he was never, ever dangerous to me or my brother, which was a godsend. And I don't think he ever could have been. Some schizophrenics can be, but for him and his personal situation, he was absolutely never 
violent to us, but he was violent to my mother. He was violent to his siblings um, when he was in crisis, to be very clear. We were also really lucky that my dad's schizophrenia was the type, almost like that movie. Um, what's the movie with Robin Williams? It's something mind. I'll look it up later. Beautiful but, mind. Is that it? Yes. It's a beautiful okay. mind. Yes. Okay. So when he was on his medication, he was like, fine, as fine, quote unquote, but like he could have a job, he could have a life. We could have great weekend experiences when we were there, when they were divorced. Like he was an excellent dad, really empathetic, really involved. But then when he wasn't well, it was night and day. So I definitely had a sense that there was something not safe about him when he was in that mode. And I would often have to take over. So if I was with him, you know, a lot of this happens where the child has to start parenting the parent. Like, you know, my brother was young, I remember, and he was allergic to bees. We were out um, with my dad for the weekend and he got stung by a bee and it triggered my dad's psychosis. And he was like, I can't handle it, Michelle, you have to handle this. So I was like eight years old going up to, you know, finding someone and being like, can you please help me call the ambulance for my brother? He's allergic to bees and we don't have our EpiPen. And the whole time they're looking at me and they're looking at my dad, who's like in the background, like, like losing it. essentially. Yeah. Yeah. Can't deal with it. I knew that that was a part of him. And I would often have dreams, you know, I don't know um, people with traumatic experiences like myself, like you work out your trauma in your dreams. So for years I'd have dreams that he would break out of Norristown and come to see me. And I would have to like grab my brother or grab like my pets, like my children, whatever I had at that moment in life that I felt like I needed to protect. And in this dream, I'd be like protecting them from my father all while trying to like moderate. Hey, good to see you. Hey, like, stay over there. <laughs> like it was very strange. Does that still happen to you or is that those are gone for the most part? They're gone because I really spent the last 10 years after he got released from Norristown, he was living in a community facility, which is kind of like a community group home, really well moderated. He had lots of care, lots of good medication. I spent like years in therapy working through it all and was really able to define healthy boundaries, fully understand what his illness was all about and, you know, take the positives and separate it from the negatives. But it took a lot of work. Yeah, I'm sure it did. I definitely want to come back to what you learned in therapy, but I had a couple of questions first. Sure. Your grandmother survived the incident. Mm -hmm. So that's good. Yeah. And they reconciled. That's that's a hell of a lot of trauma to go through. It is. And still be able to be okay with someone after doing that. Yeah. It was really tough. I think for anyone that... um, has this in their family, they realize like caring for someone with an illness that drastic is totally a family affair, Um, especially because there are so little supports in our community for people going through that. Like right now, it's a huge deal. We have something called Valley Creek Crisis Center. Um, It's in Exton. And so if you have a family member who's in crisis, you can call them up and ask for help and kind of be like, do you have a bed? Can I bring in my so-and-so? Because they really just need to regulate on medicine. Or I took them to the emergency room. They won't keep them. We can't 302, which is to like commit them for three days to get leveled out. Um, but back then we didn't have that. So as soon as my dad left the hospital and his whole family knew something was still wrong, even though they had discharged him, like they went on 24 seven watch. So they had his brothers rotating through the house being like, take your meds. Come on, take your meds. We got to get you stable again. And it was just, unfortunately, like a things just all crashed at once. It's like the moment where someone wasn't there before someone came that he just kind of lost it. So, you know, the the family, it's caused so much tra- you know trauma in the family that has taken years to unravel and lots of healing and lots of learning how to forgive ourselves for what we did, learning how to forgive him. You know, it's really deep. I'm sure uh, it's not an easy task, right? At all. <laughs> no. And one of the, one of the things I've never understood, cause I don't have anybody in my family that has dealt with this, mm-hmm. but why do people go off their medication if it's working for them Yeah, and they see that it's working for them? Everyone else sees it working for them. Why all of a sudden they like, nah, I'm good. And then three yeah. days later or however long it is yeah, back to where they started. It's been explained to me that it's like a psychological term called insight and it's our ability to recognize our role in our mental experience. So, um, you know, just the very basic of I'm feeling down today. Is that because so-and-so did this to me? Or is that because maybe I didn't get enough sleep, but there's, there's varying levels of people's ability to admit that their mental illness is their own. And so often when people with mental illnesses don't have high levels of insight, They don't actually believe they're sick. It's really hard for you to convince them that their reality is not true. 
they just can't, they're like, no, my reality is my reality. I'm right. Y'all are wrong. And I'll take this medicine if you force me to. But as soon as you're not around and forcing me to do it, since I feel fine, I'm going to think I'm fine. And these meds are bad and I'm going to stop taking them. And I'm told that that level of insight, while some of it can be taught, a lot of it's just kind of inherent. So I've been told that like, if you're born and you have 50% insight, they can probably teach you through lots of therapy and intervention to get you to like 80% where you'll be more reliably self-medicated. But if you have very little insight, it's very hard for them to get you to a point where you'll be reliable. Interesting. Yeah. Cause I mean, we've all seen people like walking around the streets, you know, and talking to themselves or yelling at things that are not there. Yeah. Um, And there's, I mean, I live, you know, in the Westchester borough and there's plenty of people like that. Um, And some one day they're fine, literally totally Mm -hmm. fine. Have a conversation with you. The next day they're just not there. It's a whole other person. You know, it's, um, it's difficult too, because those medications have tons of side effects. Like if you can get someone well, they'll, like my father was in his fifties when he was um, diagnosed with early onset Parkinson's just from the level of medications he's been on. So they mess with your stomach. They make you gain weight. They mess with your sex drive, like anything you can imagine. They have huge side effects. So a lot of times people, they'll be like weighing quality of life with the medication that they're on. Some of them can make them feel numb. So they'll be like, this is kind of boring. (laughs) My life was better before. And then also there's a strange thing that happens when you're an adult with a major illness like that. You're not treated the same. You're stigmatized. And so in any social circle you go into, you just feel like you're being treated like a child. The system does it. People who aren't familiar with your illness, like they either fear you or they treat you like a child or they treat you like um, a prisoner. So I can see, I would imagine, I'm guessing that maybe some people are just like, I want nothing to do with that. I'm just going to live on my own in the street because I've got full and complete control of whatever the hell I want to do. And F y'all. <laughs> right. And nobody can tell me not to. Yeah. 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 yeah I mean, I, I was on um, some Wellbutrin in high school just for depression. Um, yeah. And I was on it for years. I was probably on it for like 10 years. And granted, it's not nearly as severe as like schizophrenic yeah. medications and lithium and all that stuff. But um, it's still, I was on it for a long period of time. and. It wasn't until probably, I don't even know, like five years after high school, maybe sometime the end of college, I realized it just wasn't, I didn't need it anymore. Right. I didn't need it, but it was just a habit to do it. And then taking it, getting off of it was a whole other process. And like, it killed my sex drive. It killed my like artistic vision that I completely Mm -hmm. just destroyed it all. And, and and I wouldn't say destroyed, but more like you said, like it numbed it out. Right. Like I just didn't want to do anything. Yeah. You know, once I was finally able to get off of it, it was a whole, whole new world. And I, granted, I wasn't depressed anymore. Like that was right. a long time gone. So I can only imagine like even heavier, you know, heavier medications and sedatives and just all sorts of stuff to just make you normal, quote unquote, just ends up messing with your head even more. Oh my gosh. Yeah. By the end, the poor man was on, cause I would have to help him with his medication list. He had 30 different medications that he took on a daily basis. Four of them were psychiatric and kept him stable all the rest were side effect medications. They That's were moderating yeah. blood pressure, stomach issues, vision issues, kidney issues, like all of the other stuff that comes with needing to take those meds. That's wild. Yeah. Yeah. That's a shame. All right. So let's talk real quick too about, you touched on this Valley Creek center. Yeah. So what's, what is that? I mean, you're not part of it. You just know about it. Right. I'm not part of it. I just know about it. So, um, Many families who have a severe, uh, a member with a severe mental illness in their family have few options when their family member is in crisis. And usually it's you try and take them to the emergency room. Most of the time they don't want to go. Once you get to the emergency room, if you're lucky, the person will sign themselves in for a 72 hour psych hold where they can maybe get stable, get some help, start some therapy. And it gives you a chance to get in touch with a social worker and maybe find some extra supports within the community. But a lot of that's based on insurance mm-hmm. and the person in crisis has to sign themselves in, which rarely happens. So then your other option is to, it's like so extreme, call the police and get them what they call 302, which is involuntarily committed for 72 hours. But in order to have that happen, the person has to be a danger to themselves, a danger to others, or in severe self-neglect. And to prove those three things is often really, really difficult. So it's rare that you can just call and be like, hey, can you help me 302 my loved one? It'll be like, maybe, maybe not. Um, So it leaves families with very, very little choice. 
And for years, it was that way. So thankfully, that's why Valley Creek crisis can sometimes be an option. There's a number through our county, Chester County, and many counties have this. It's like a um, site crisis emergency line, and they'll try and help you navigate how to get your family members stable again. But again, it's mostly on the family to, to shoulder that liability, and it's difficult. Yeah, it sounds very difficult. It sounds like, like you said, like, how do you prove that someone's dangerous or a danger to themselves or, yeah. you know, because... You, maybe you think so because you've dealt, dealt with this person, you know, they're not normally yeah. that, that way, Yeah. but you know, then the police show up or they don't know any different. No. Right. So like, or a lot of times what happens is just like, you know, I don't, I don't know how to, I don't want to correlate it or diminish it by saying like, like a tantruming child, but it's very much like that. They can be losing their ever loving mind with you and their family at home. Mm-hmm. And somebody comes to help at the door. Stops. I'm fine. No, yeah. I, I took my meds. I'll take them right here in front of you. Like, just, we're good. We're good. We're good. That person leaves explosion again. That's wild. Yeah. Because people, yeah, I can see that, that once they get in, confronted with, oh, the possibility of me leaving my comfort zone and dealing yeah. with strangers and having to be, you know, on a, on a lockdown for any period of time, they'll just button up and be normal. Oh, yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. Amazing. Yeah. yeah. The brain is amazing. Huh? It is. You know, it yeah. really is. Um, all right, so let's let's move move forward here a little bit. So sure. you you've you had this childhood. You were able to cope with it through therapy after the fact, having learned, you know, that there was a lot of stressors and it wasn't quote unquote a normal childhood, whatever that means to anybody anymore. Right. Um, but you had to better yourself so that way you could be a normal human functioning adult. Yeah. And you said you went through you know years of therapy and and. To, to cope with this and to know what was right, what was wrong and how you handled it. Mm-hmm. What was that like for you? Like, what was um, the benefits or where were you, where were you beforehand and what are, where are you now? Yeah. Well, you know, I think everyone copes differently and um, I became like an overdoer where I just like pushed for perfection on almost everything. And I kept myself busy all the time, um, which only lasts for so long. So I think when we talked before, you know, I think everyone has a a moment where they, they can't just shoulder it anymore. And my moment was when I had children. So, you know, for the first time you cannot control a little baby. You really can't, you can control everything else in this world, but they're going to scream and be hungry and be miserable and prevent you from sleeping. And there's like absolutely nothing you can do to control that. Um, And so it kind of like tore my whole world down. And um, I got a little you know, I got some postpartum depression and that was the first time that, uh, that I actually landed in effective therapy. I had been in therapy off and on before, but it was like testing the waters. Like, am I going to like what you have to say to me? And whenever it got time for me to do the really hard work and do the really hard reflections and admit how much my um, childhood was impacting my um, patterns for living, I was like, mm, too heavy. I can't handle this right now. But when it came time to have to put my put myself together for my children. It was the motivation that I needed to stick with it. And I would love to tell you that I went in there and was like, this is amazing. I have so much instant relief. Like, no, (laughs) the first two years for me were like, Oh, I have to go to therapy again. Like it was a struggle. It was a real struggle to have to go in there every week and be like, okay, let's, let's stir the pot. Let's dig up all that shit. I've been marrying for years, bring on the tears for this next hour. Um, and then what happens in the days after that, where you're like facing it for the first time, um, it was hard, but it was necessary because otherwise, you know, I think I probably would have, um, used alcohol to cope. I would have probably like wrecked my marriage. <laughs> I would have like acted out or done other things. Like I just, I made a choice it was my choice to pull it together. Yeah. I mean, it sounds like it was the right choice, obviously. Thank you. I went through therapy and for a couple of times through like high school, yeah. element, even, even middle school, I think maybe even elementary school, my mom tried me yeah. to do some therapy then. And it wasn't for me. Like I just didn't, I wasn't interested. I, I didn't yeah. like any of the therapists. It was just sad and depressing. Cause at that point, you, you know, for, from my experience, it was like, all right, this is a sick and dying child. And how do you cope with death when you're seven and eight years old? You know, or how do you cope with, it's the same question. 10 years later, like when you're 18 and what's, what's the future look like? So of course I didn't want to go to therapy because it was depressing for me. It made me feel Mm -hmm. worse. Yeah. But two years ago, I started going to a therapist on my own that I chose as an adult Mm -hmm. and 
she has helped me immensely, you know, and really helped me just get out of all the same issues that I had growing up with a terminal illness and getting, getting to be okay with my life and what I've done up to that point. Yeah. And then where I can be in the future as well. Right. Like it just, it really helped get rid of some of that shit I've been carrying around. And before I couldn't even say CF without crying. Like I couldn't do, I couldn't even mutter the words of, of the disease without literally just tears immediately. It was, it was tough, but you know, I've, I've said this before. I'll say it again. Like if, if people can find a therapist that they work with, that they can trust, it's amazing. Yeah. I, I, I was definitely in a really dark place. And like the end of 18, 2018 in the middle of 2019, it was just like, things weren't going well. And it wasn't because of my illness. It just everything else around me wasn't, wasn't helping the situation. And I had like a lot of regret for my past. I didn't know what yeah. the future was going to be like. I had just like, it was just a bunch of stuff, no savings in my account, like no job. Mm-hmm. Like it was a lot of bad stuff and yeah. it just kept compiling and compiling and compiling and made me feel even worse. Yeah. And finally I was like, I got to talk to somebody. Otherwise it's not, I'm not going to live another year. Like of my own, of my own will. Like I just would just end it. I was so miserable. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And thankfully I didn't Yes. and got some help and now, you know, helping other people. Right. Yeah, exactly. So, yeah. One of the things I totally loved when we talked the last time is, is how impactful like, I don't know what you want to call it, but just that vision casting that your parents did for you over your life, like in telling you you're a survivor, this is just part of how, like how you function. And I almost wonder if part of your aversion to going to therapy when you were young was like, yo guys, this isn't matching with the worldview you've built for me. Like I choose this worldview where I'm good. I survive. I'm happy. I thrive. And when I have to go here and get sad about it or worried about it, like it, it almost cancels out the energy. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you're you're 100 right. Yeah, we you and I talked about that. Like, basically, just a real recap. My parents taught me to just always think positively on the outlook of things and my future, mm-hmm. and take care of myself. And first and foremost, think that I was going to live, think that I was healthy, yeah. and think that I was, yeah. and believe it. Not just think it, but believe it. Yeah. And because if I believe it, then your brain tells your body, and then your body figures out what is being told to do by the brain. So that's what my mom and my dad taught me to do ever since I was old enough to think was think I'm healthy, think I have a future and continue on that path. And I did for years. I mean, I still do, but you're right. And that's one of the reasons too, I think like, that's why I was in denial, right? Like, Mm because if I, if I literally deny that I have this disease and that, that everybody else who has this disease was dying in the eighties. And I didn't, if I thought of it as a positive thing, like I just don't have it or I take care of myself and I'm better than that, then Mm -hmm. I, then I will survive. And that's exactly what happened. I just really love that concept of flipping the script, you know, because absolutely every circumstance in our life, if you look at it, it's a neutral circumstance and we can either look at it positively or we can look at it negatively. And I really count myself lucky because the people around me, as I was growing up, um, they framed my dad's illness in compassion in love. And, um, yeah, he's struggling, but he's doing the best he can. And I think I told you this last time, my husband's mother, um, also has a severe mental illness, slightly different bipolar, but they lacked that framing of compassion. They didn't have as much information. They didn't have as much resources and there's been a lower ability for his family to heal and for her to heal because it, it was framed as like, it's her fault. It's she's messing this up. Um, she could do better if she just X, Y, Z. Whereas on my side of the family, it was like, you know what? Your dad really struggles. He loves you very much. He can't see you this weekend. It's not because he doesn't want to, but when he feels better, he'll be with you. So there was like a lot of really healthy compassion that made it so that I could heal and he could heal at all. Like we could be talking right now about how I've been estranged from my father my entire life. And then he died and I didn't know and how I'm just dealing with it now. And blah, blah, blah. You know, like, I don't know. I just consider myself really lucky that people flipped the script for me and, and gave me this opportunity to see his illness as just that an illness. He was a person with an illness. He wasn't like just crazy dad. You know what I mean? Yeah. I think, yeah, um, I think it's extremely powerful how we think about our circumstances in life. Absolutely. I mean, like, you know, power of positive thinking, right? That's, that's what they say, you know, the power of positive thinking. And, and I mean, it's great to hear that your family dealt with it that way, opposed to, you know, not letting you see him at all and saying that it's his fault and all these horrible things that happen to families. I mean, my own, 
my own father, his mother was bipolar and they put her into a place when she, when he was five years old, he never saw her again. Oh, well, that breaks my heart. He saw her once, like before she passed away, I was like, maybe I was 10 and we visited her yeah. and that was yeah. it. That was the only time, you know? And oh, so hard. So hard. I don't know anything about that story, but sometimes that's the healthiest path. I mean, sometimes it is. Sometimes that person just is unable to offer anything therapeutic or positive to the child in their life. And there's not much you can do about that when that happens, but yeah. And you know, it was a different time period too. You know, yeah. it was like my dad was born in the mid fifties. So yeah. they put her away in the early sixties and we didn't see her again until like probably the nineties. Yeah. Oh, and they had no medications for that back then too. Medications no. were horrible. Yeah. Right. Right. So, um, yeah. so yeah, I mean, it's, it's a terrible thing to have to deal with, but it's pretty amazing that you were able to deal with that and, oh, thank you. you know, move past it and you still were able to have a good relationship with your father, you know, until, yeah. until the end. So, yeah, exactly. It was a blessing. It really was, you know, I learned so much from him and how he navigated his illness and his suffering. And I, I feel really lucky that I learned a lot about what's important in life. I mean, it's, it's hard to, um, you know, it feels so cliche, like what's important and what's not important. But when you have so little access to a quality life and you finally get the simple things of like a house, privacy, you know, he was able to remarry in the end. So like a loving partner and enough money to survive, like that's all he needed. He didn't want anything more than that. He didn't need anything fancy. He didn't need a bigger home, a better car. Like all he wanted was freedom to live, see his family, connect and love his grandchildren. And he was like, good. And it just makes you realize that in the end, that's all that matters. Yeah. And the connections in your life, that's all that matters. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And then, you know, because you were able to see that and that you were able to realize that, you know, people need just those few things to make a world difference to those who don't have it. Yeah. Right. If you don't have that, it's night and day, you know, yeah. for when you do yeah. get those few things. Yeah. So tell me a little bit about your, your charity too, because it's a little bit about that too. It's like yeah. similarly aligned. Yeah. Yeah. So it's called, it takes a village and it's really just built off of the premise of, uh, you know, neighbors helping neighbors. We're all able to help each other thrive and succeed in the basics, which are just connecting with each other, having compassion for one another, loving one another. It doesn't take a lot. Like you don't have to have thousands of dollars to donate to a charity and help someone. You don't have to dive in there and dedicate all your time, but like, Hey, this family doesn't have beds for their kids. You can, you know, drop off a mattress or two, or, Hey, this family's in a pinch and they don't have food for two weeks until they get their next paycheck you know, I can drop off a bag of groceries. I can make a lasagna and drop it off. So like trying to facilitate that connection within our community, because at the end of the day, that that's all that matters. I'm like a broken record, but it started at a time um, in the 2016 election where it was just the first time I saw people being so polarized and fighting with each other and people who I never thought would fight fighting and families breaking up over their political opinions. And I was like, whoa, 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 everybody. A, I couldn't handle it. I was like, I can't handle this. You guys are driving me nuts. But B, I just felt compelled to remind people that we're here for more than that. We're not here to fight. We're here to help each other. So, you know, we started because it, I literally was just like, who wants to help me um, support the Coatesville Women's Shelter? And it was like 20 other friends did. And I said, great, I'll make us a Facebook group. So we're offline with it. And uh, they added their friends and their friends added their friends. And I think by the magic of Facebook algorithms and the emotional situation the world was in, within two days, we had over 450 people. And then I was like, mm, I really got to do this now. <laughs> so it kind of just rolled from there. But um, yeah, right now we, we've been around for about four and a half years and we're focused more on what we call blessing boxes or food boxes. So they're these anonymous containers out in Chester County where you can donate food at any time and people in need can take food from them at any time. So 24 seven anonymous. And then also, um, like I described before, just filling a gap when people need help. So you're not quite at the point where you can apply for assistance, um, but you have a medical situation, can't work for two weeks, you're going to fall behind on your bills and you need food. Um, we come in and we will help a family once every two years, just with these critical needs situations. We kind of like 
come in, drop off food, clothing, small cash grants for bills, and then, you know, some resources for the future. So what if someone needs it more than two years? What if like they had a real shit situation and you came in and fixed it and they got back on their feet and then something else happens again and they get the rug pulled out from underneath them? Then what, what do they do then? That's a good question. So we're not, I can't even really say we come in and fix it in most of these situations. Sure. We just kind of provide this emergency aid and then we have a whole resources and referral list. So, you know, if, if we're just helping them with the rent this one month, but they're probably not going to make it the next, we have a whole list of, you know, here are some places you can call if you're struggling with housing, if you end up homeless, if this is a domestic violence situation, here's more resources from that. Um, so it's just trying to help in those in-between moments where other organizations usually don't touch. Yeah, no, that makes, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Do you find it as though the demographic is varied in the area or do you think it's specifically more one group of people versus the other type of people? Yeah, um, I think that's a really good question. Uh, you know, particularly when it comes to race, I would say it's not weighted one way or the other. We are we are seeing demographics all across the board. Um, I will say that our services probably are not as easy to ask, access right now for the Hispanic community, or I would expect to see more in our Hispanic communities. We're definitely seeing a lot of aid in like the Coatesville, Parksburg, Modena area, um, Kennett, uh, a little bit in Phoenixville. So it, it kind of follows the socioeconomic lines of our county area. We see a lot of single mothers. That breaks my heart, but that's also kind of why I started it. You know, single mothers shoulder a lot. So do men, but, you know, mothers shoulder a lot. Um, but we saw a huge uptick, of course, when COVID hit. So we saw all kinds of things and that's really continued. People are still in below a certain socioeconomic level really struggling with yeah. just the basic necessities like food, you know, making rent, really simple stuff. Let's say someone wanted to donate something yeah. to this. Where can they do that? And what do you all accept? Yeah. So we have a website. It takes a village cc.org and we accept cash donations that really just help facilitate all of our programs. Uh, but we also take the food donations at the food boxes. That's on our website. There's eight different locations now, and we're probably going to add about four or five more within the next year. Um, but when we're specifically helping families, like I described, those we call our neighbor to neighbor kind of sponsorships, they come up and they're shared within our Facebook group. So we have a private Facebook group that has about 3000 people in it right now. So if you pop in there, then you get notified when we're supporting a family and we have a list of their needs and you can donate through there. But at this time, we don't necessarily accept or collect like excess because we don't have a storage location. That might be a great thing for the future. Like I'd love to open a free store in the future where we just take everyone's donations and a couple times a month, it's like doors open. What do you need? Come in and get it. Yeah. Kind of stuff. Yeah. But. That makes a lot of sense. So you said cash donations. So like somebody can donate via your website though. Like they can go in there and like, hey, donate and I can put this yeah, through. Yeah, have got donations um, electronically. We're also on PayPal and Venmo. Um, we are a 501c3. So everything is uh, tax deductible. And we commit since we're a relatively small organization, we're robust with a good reach, but we're small. So we can kind of promise you that everything that you donate goes 100% back into our community because we have very, very little overhead. All of our administrators are volunteers and our overhead is covered by some specific legacy donors. So anything that comes to us um, through our website is dedicated 100% to Chester County programs and the people in your own backyard. We don't, you know, we're not like, I don't want to drag other organizations under the bus, but you won't see that we spent like 90% on CEOs, you know, salaries. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So what's, what's the future look like for it takes a village. I mean, you just continue as, as normal or do you have bigger plans for the future? Yeah. Um, right now we're continuing as is. I would love and my goal for the next like two years is to bring on a paid um, executive director so we can scale. I'd love to get some a social worker on board so that to your point, we can be a little more robust in how we connect the families that come to us with long term assistance so that we're not just, a, you know, fill the gap once every two years and they continue to struggle. So that's our goal is to get some paid staff in the future, but we just need to scale up a little bit. Yeah, no, it's a great idea. Um, I guess you would have to get some sort of like endowment for that, I suppose, or some sort of like government funding. I don't know if that even exists to pay for those people. 
Until now, which is a, a really thing that a wonderful thing we love for the past four years, we've just been funded purely on the grassroots donations of our community. We just are filing for grants for the first time this year. So we'll get some capacity building grants from some county organizations that'll help us scale up. And then also we're going to reach out to some of our existing donors um, with our plans and see if they'll commit to helping us scale. Nice. Good. Yeah. That's cool. That's a good idea. Um, I have a couple other things I want to talk talk about real quick. We got 15 minutes or so. On our brief phone call, we talked about very different kind of thing, which would be your more recent ability of like, uh, how do I even say this? Like, how do I even call it? Like, just talking to the dead. Yeah, I mean, sure, you can say that. Yeah, I wanted to. Yeah, I'm a psychic medium. I know from my own experience. Once, once my grandmother passed away, I mean, I, I was super close to her, and. Um, I just couldn't, I couldn't cope with it very well. And it had been like three to six months after she passed away and I was still not doing well. Cause I would call her every couple of days. I would be there every couple of days. And like, it was difficult, very difficult for me to, to have her pass. But then I talked to my friend's mother, who is a psychic medium and she connected the dots. We had a nice little talk. I was box of tissues later. I felt pretty good about myself. Yeah. Learned all sorts of things from my <laughs> my dead grandmother yeah, <laughs> talking to me, uh, through her, it was wild time. And, um, you know, I, most people are skeptics about this and I was, I was not a hundred percent for it, but at the same time I figured it couldn't hurt. Yeah. And it definitely helped clear the yeah. air for me. It's a, it's a, for those who are willing to be open enough to give it a chance, it's an incredibly powerful healing experience, um, that I think can just, when you find the right medium fit for you and you know, there's everyone jives with different mediums differently, but when you find the right fit and you have a good reading, it can really just cut, you know, months off of your grieving period because it's just incredibly powerful. Cause I don't know if you felt this, but like, sometimes you can feel it. Like you literally just, you know, your loved one is there. You're, you're, you have goosebumps, like your head and heart are in a different place. It's, it's energetically an amazing experience and, and something I just feel honored and blessed and sometimes still amazed that I've been able to do. Like I, I said to you before, I haven't been doing this. I've been doing it my whole life without admitting that I could do it. I've been doing it formally and, you know, as a business and providing readings for strangers um, for a little over two years at this point. So I've, I'm, I'm in a point in my career with this where I'm kind of opening it up to the universe and saying, how can I use this for best and highest good for myself and for others? Like, where do you need me to be of service in this role? Because I truly believe that that's how good mediums get this gift and this blessing. Only if we're willing to bring it for the greatest good of others, because I'm not looking to be the next Teresa Caputo, nothing against her, but like, this is, this is a beautiful gift of healing like you experienced when you were able to speak with your grandmother. And it's an honor to be able to channel this information through for people. And I want to make sure I, I do it service. Yeah. I, I found out all sorts of stuff that I didn't even know about talking to this medium so much so that I had to take notes and then go home and ask my mom yeah. questions to verify that what she was saying was true. And there's no way that she would have known this, the medium without having spoken to my dead grandmother, yes. <laughs> which is crazy, but I, know. I didn't even know it. And I, you know, had spent how many hours, countless days and nights there at that house with her. So, yeah. so have you, have you even tried to contact your own family members? So, yeah, I have connected with my own people at times for sure. Um, and I have connected with my dad, but I'll tell you something that happens like sometimes when mediums are trying to connect for their own information, there's sometimes a block. There's only so much that our spirit guides want us in the physical manifestation to know. So for instance, sometimes when I'm working with someone else in another reading and I've brought through all of their loved ones information and we've brought them everything they kind of want to know. And then they'll ask me a question like, ask my grandmother if I should take this job on Friday. And sometimes I'll literally like hit a wall and either their loved one or my guide show me the symbol that I have for like, nope, you know, I'll tell her that because <laughs> we're here to grow and learn of our own accord. And I can't always bring through all the cheats. So for the, sometimes I connect and I'm looking for my own cheats and they're like, nope. <laughs> um, but but no lottery some, tickets, no winning yeah, numbers. Yeah. I've had some amazing experiences with my dad specifically, like one of them recently, um, he had a very bad death at the end. It was very difficult. He was in a lot of pain. It went on forever. 
Um, and I was just reliving those traumatic moments over and over again and kept thinking like, is there something I should have done? Uh, what could I have done differently? And this whole time I'm grieving. So I'm crying a lot and trying not to beat myself up. And um, right before I woke up in the morning, which is when a lot of times people will get information from the other side is in that kind of space between awake and asleep. And he came through and I heard him clear as day and I saw him in my mind's eye and he was like, and he was a cursor. So forgive me, but he was like, stop fucking worrying about me. And I was just so excited to see him. I was like, dad, dad, there you are. Hi dad. Hey, I miss you. I miss you. And he was like, stop fucking worrying about me. I was in so much pain. I wasn't even there. I didn't even care. I was already gone. I'm fine. Will you stop? And I was like, okay, okay. I'll stop. I love you. I'll see you later. <laughs> so funny. And then I, and then I pinged him. Cause I was like, dad, what's heaven like? What's heaven like? And he was like, eh, not bad. <laughs> Which cracks me up. Yeah. That's very much my dad where he'd be like, it's, it's all right. You know, okay. um, but you know, I'll tell you like when I connect with people on the other side, every medium is different. Right. And, and we are, it's like playing a game of charades and we have to interpret the information that's coming to us. So I'm always going to interpret it through the lens of the personality and my life experiences that I have. And for whatever reason, the spirits that seem to come to me and the pure people that seem to come to me, the spirits I run into, like they want to get to the guts of people's emotional experiences in this life. So like they'll bring through, yes, I was in my sixties. Yes. I, you know, loved cars when I was young. Yes. I um, passed from, you know, a heart from, you know, something with the blood in the heart. Um, you know, yes, I had this kind of hair and I smoked and I did this. Like they'll bring through all that stuff until the person believes hmm. and then they'll be like, all right, now we need to talk about her marriage. There's something going on in her marriage and she's not going to tell you about it, but you need to talk to her about how she's treating him and how she needs to be. Blah, blah, blah. And so it's often hard because I'm like, um, they would like to talk about your marriage. Would that be okay with you? <laughs> you know? So spirit likes to get to the point. And, and most of the time they want to bring through the importance of forgiveness. They want people to know how much they are loved and continued to be loved. They want to get through apologies. They want to recognize how hard someone is working in this life on something really difficult and commend them and encourage them to keep going. The themes that come through are, are really beautiful. Yeah, it seems like they bring all these like descriptive things at first to prove their, yeah. who they yeah. say they are, and then they drop the bombs. They do. They yeah. really do. Yep. <laughs> Yeah, that's that's pretty crazy. Um, yeah, I would never thought of that either. It's yeah. like, I mean, I guess they have to prove themselves. And then at the same time, they're there with limited times. So they have to get yes. the point right away. Exactly. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Huh. Yeah. Um, so can people hire you for this? Yes. Yeah, they can. I have a, a website. It's michelleterry.org. Um, I'll get you all the details and maybe we can put them in the show notes. And I also have it's pure love and sisterhood dot com um because i also do women's circles and i do group mediumship immersions so if an independent reading feels out of reach we do small group meditations where i kind of teach you how to meditate your way up to the level where spirit can access you because they're at such a high vibration we kind of need to raise up they need to raise down so it's a matter of practicing of getting yourself into that place and then learning to trust what you feel and see so i run these group meditations where I kind of put you through an exercise to help raise you up. And then you have your own individual experience. And then I can bring through validation from your loved ones to kind of help you realize what you saw was real, what you felt was real. And you have the ability to access that without me. And so I kind of do that because it's, it's something we can all do at varying levels. So I was born with it. I was a little more open to start. So it was a little easier for me to get in this place, but everyone has the ability to kind of open and find their own inner heart, inner knowing kind of inner truth. So those groups session sessions, can you do that currently? If to, is it in person? Is it a zoom thing? Is it, how's it work? Right now it's in person. Cause it's a little easier to do in person. And I do them out of my sister-in-law's studio. So it's social distant and it's, you know, the appropriate number of people in a space. I did my last one in March and then I've got some dates for 2021 that I have to put up. The next one's in uh, May and then I've got one in August and then again in October. Cool. I would send me, send me the dates. Sure. So, cause I sure. can try to fit that into my schedule as well. It'd be great. Yeah, love to. Um, so, I mean, I think the last question I want to ask you in the short, short time we have left here is what would you 
out of all of your life experiences at this point, what would you tell your previous self, like your childhood Michelle, right? Like when you're at your worst, lowest, saddest part, the most difficult time, what would you tell yourself about either the future then or what you've learned now? Dang, Josh, that's a heavy question. It's a a banger at the end. (laughs) I'm like, tears, back, hold off. Yeah. I think I would say a combination of, and it sounds so cliche, but like follow your heart and you can never go wrong. It absolutely always gets better. Trust that it always gets better. And if you don't feel like it's right, don't do it. There you go. That's what I think I'd say. Yeah. Those are all, all good things to live by for sure. So, yeah. well, thank you for spending. And I'd also probably me. like whisper her the lottery numbers and be like, this is going to make it a hell of a lot easier. Just <laughs> ladies numbers on like april of 2003 yeah invest in google (laughs) amazon put money in amazon right right no i I appreciate your time um thank thank you you, josh this was an honor this is really an honor not a problem so yeah i just appreciate your time and it was great catching up with you again and good to see you this time so yeah i know very cool no thank you so much i really wish you the best of luck with this i think it's going to be incredible and i'll try and send some really good folks your way yeah awesome i appreciate it yeah thank you so much all right. Good Enjoy to see you. Take care. You yeah, too. you too. Bye-bye. Bye. So there you have it. A uh, real nice conversation with my, my old friend, Michelle. You know, we went to high school together. Hadn't seen each other for a bunch of years. She reached out to me on Facebook, you know, talking about her story. And, uh, and I think it's a good story. I, I think that this could help a lot of people, hopefully, you know, like having to grow up living with the knowledge of your father having mental illness, you know, having a, a family member that close with schizophrenia and having to deal with that as a child and then transfer that emotion into an adult and be okay with it in the future. You know, like that's, that's a hell of a thing to live with, you know, and um, good for her for being able to get past it and accept the fact that it was an illness and he was a sick man and it wasn't his fault. So good for her. And then, you know, also pretty cool that she contacted him after his passing because of her psychic abilities and be able to talk to the man, you know, and see how he's doing. And clearly he's doing okay now. So that's nice to hear also happy ending. So yeah, so that wraps it up. Hey, thanks for listening. If you have any questions, comments, concerns, hit me up. You can always get me on my website, overcomingtheodds.co. And as always, if you know anybody who would be great for the podcast, send them my way. This podcast was brought to you by Gaming VPN. If you don't have a VPN, you should definitely download Gaming VPN for, well, gaming and streaming. Stay secure online all the time. It's only available on iOS. Go to gamingvpn.tech, T-E-C-K. This has been a Robot Mouse production. If you like what you heard, please give me a five-star rating and tell your friends about the show. All right. Have a great day. Thanks again.